If you have a dog, then you know BarkBox, a totally customized box of themed toys and treats for your favorite pup every month. Personally, I'm obsessed with it, and I have a sneaking suspicion that my own dog, Otto, is too. Matt Meeker. I'm Matt Meeker. I'm the co-founder and executive chairman of Bark. Co-founded BarkBox during the first wave of subscription boxes back in 2011. In the years that followed, front doors everywhere became inundated with subscription boxes for practically every whim and fancy. Now, for many of those brands, scaling is what proved to be the pressure test. For Matt and BarkBox, however, they were able to really leverage personalization to best meet their customers' needs. Over the years, the company grew to become known as Bark, overseeing its popular BarkBox brand, as well as others like Bark Bright, Super Chewer, and Bark Eats. Matt tells me about how one pig, yes, pig, changed how the company approached personalization, why they're invested so heavily in customer support, and how, given the global crisis, Bark knew just where to adapt to continue its growth. I'm Megan Keeney Anderson, and this is The Growth Show. Well, hey, thanks for, for taking the time to talk with us. I was very excited as a dog owner um, to to get the chance to meet you and to talk with you. So Yeah, you bet. What kind of dog do you have? I have a, um, he's a mixed breed. He looks like a little stubby yellow lab, but he's a cross between a Jack Russell Terrier and I was told a Chihuahua, which does not make sense because he's way bigger than a Chihuahua. <laughs> uh, so I think he's got some lab in him too. What kind of dog do you have? I have a Great Dane. Oh, awesome. Yeah, very big boy. I would imagine that like everybody in these interviews starts talking about your current dog, but I would love to hear about your first dog. I want to know the one that that captivated your love for dogs from the beginning. What was the (laughs) first dog you ever had? Uh, The first dog I had was a combination of a beagle and a like a collie. Oh. So he was very low to the ground, very short, stubby legs. Yeah. He was wide. He was a kind of a meaty guy, long, um, yep. with this long, bushy tail. His his name was Albert. Did you pick that name? I, I did not. So the, the, the very interesting story about him, I, I think this happened when, uh, you know, at the time I was growing up, not so much today, but this was not our dog. This was a dog that lived across town and right. he was more of an outdoor dog. And for whatever reason, he would wander away from his home and wander over to our home. And we didn't know the people Uh whose dog this was at all. Um, He would just wander over to our home and spend the day there. And then we'd end up like putting him in the car and taking him back. And after doing that a few times, the people said, he seems really like being at your home. Why don't you just keep him? (laughs) So (laughs) that's how he became our dog. (laughs) And then you seem to have gotten progressively bigger and bigger. Uh, I don't think you can get much bigger than a Great Dane. So right. That's all, good. <laughs> all right. Well, so let's let's go back to the start of BarkBox in particular. So it's 2011. Where did the idea for BarkBox come from? I, I think classically from a pain point that I'm feeling and with a, with a Great Dane, uh, a newer Great Dane at that time in the house. Uh, <laughs> He's obviously a bigger dog, and he's very big for New York City. So he's he's not very well served by a New York City pet store. They just don't stock the the extra large of everything there. Anything, um, yeah. And that was frustrating for me as I'd walk into a lot of pet stores looking for size-appropriate toys or treats or what have you, um, anything that 
suited him and would make him happy and was just striking out on that. So that yeah. was one aspect of it. The other was I was working in venture capital at the time and there were a lot of new commerce businesses getting started and I kind of felt like a dummy in a lot of in many of the conversations where people are telling me about their business but I didn't understand really how it worked. Hmm. Those two things collided where I thought, well, I'll just start this and I'll get to learn a bit more about a commerce business and at the same time I'll be able to find products that Hugo will love and we'll, we'll do that for a little while and it'll be fun. Yeah. Did you, when did you start to have a sense that it was going to be more than just an experimental venture, that it was going to start to take off? <laughs> uh, about six months after we launched it, I still thought of it as sort of a fun side project all the way through. You know, we'd never, we hadn't to that point raised any outside capital. Yeah. And I started to think more and more about jumping into it full time. And uh, while I was having those thoughts, um, my dad, who is probably as Luddite as they come, ended up actually subscribing to the product uh, without really knowing that I was doing this. And really? that to me was a signal of, wow. Uh, no concept. So that was the second purchase he ever has made online. And so to me, that was a big sign of, if, if you're going to move that guy, there, there's got to be something there. How did you find out about that? When did you two connect <laughs> the dots? I, uh, I, I'm sort of data obsessed, but in those early days, you can, you can look at the names of every new customer who comes in day by day. And yeah. you're always curious about, like, do you have all 50 states covered yet? And where are the new people coming from? How do they hear about it? And I saw my dad's name in there on a Sunday morning, and I thought my co-founders were messing with me. Wow, that's that's wild. And so since then, you've you know kind of expanded into a few different brands underneath this sort of Bark um, architecture. Can you tell me a little bit about that expansion and what's driven that? Sure. Uh, the initial Bark box was serving three different types of dogs, and that was based on size, so small, medium, and large. And mm. over time, we got to know the customer that we were serving better and better, and we ended up making a product development team to better serve those customers or certainly respond more directly to their feedback. Yeah. Then we started to move down the personalization road where we were somewhat more personalized than three assortments, but not a lot. Uh, the, the thing that really pushed us down that road, um, we had a customer call us and say, I actually subscribe for a pig. Uh, my pig <laughs> loves your toys and loves your treats. But this month, we received a bag of pork treats. And oh. I'm sure you can see why that's problematic. So could you not send those anymore? And that, that was a, a really shocking lesson into how individually unique every customer, every dog, in this case, every pig is, yeah. and how we need to tailor to their individual needs. So we started to, to branch out like that. And today it's 150,000 unique assortments. How do you tailor to that many different assortments? So you get that feedback from um, said pig owner <laughs> family. Do you have the ability at that point to just flip a switch and turn off the pork treats to that address? Not at that point we didn't. We do today. Uh, at that point, we have a 
We have a team that's our customer support team. We call them our happy team. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, they have a lot of autonomy and can go to any length to make a customer happy. Um, in this particular case, the person on the other end of that line didn't have the mechanism to do it. So she said, I will make sure that you get a box every month without any pork treats. And she wrote a post-it note, put it on her wall, and would assemble that box herself at her desk in Ohio and send wow. it off herself. And that that sort of grew within our Columbus, Ohio office where one person became nine and then 90 yeah. and then 900. And then I picked up on this on a trip out there where I saw this assembly line of boxes being put together and asked, like, what, what's going on here? We have a warehouse. And that's when they brought me into their, quote, no dog left behind program. Yeah. Uh, and so we, we had to race behind them to, to create the systems and the, the operations to, to do that more at scale. Yeah. What do you look for in the data? So you're, you're, you're a data guy. You're using a lot of customer data for better personalization. How do you know when you've got enough of a trend to create a new segment? And you know what are the ways in which you collect and then utilize that data? I mean, the number one thing that, that I care about is the customer happiness. Mm -hmm. And the way we're collecting a lot of data is just by talking to customers and talking to them about their dogs it's pretty easy to get someone to talk about their dog. Um, you, you can start by talking yep, about guilty. yours. And, yep. and people will just go on and on and tell you everything. But in the everything, there are a lot of signals for us to pick up on. Um, we can pick up age. We can pick up size, breed, certainly your geography or location, uh, right. any allergies or sensitivities, likes, dislikes, um, so we're just listening through the course of a casual conversation and feeding that back into that customer's individual profile. That's interesting that it's that unstructured, that it's really kind of picking apart pieces of a customer conversation and then using that in a very hand-tailored way to, uh, to sway how their experience is going to be moving forward. I didn't expect it would be that um, unstructured. Well, it's casual in nature. We're looking for a lot of the same signals, though. So we might yeah. we might lead you there and saying something like, uh, I might tell you, Hugo's the kind of dog that just, he never destroys a toy. He carries these things around the house. And <laughs> after eight years of this thing, they're just piling up everywhere. Right. You know, if someone told me that about Hugo, I would say, let's look at their lifespan within the Bark universe. And if they've been with us over a year, there's a good chance they're, they've got too many toys piling up. So let's change the balance between toys and more consumables so they oh, don't feel so like smart. they're overwhelmed. Or if their yeah. dog destroys it, let's move them to more durable, heavy chewer, super chewer type fabrics. But those are just very structured elements that we would, we would check off and that would change that customer's assortment. Now, you clearly care about your customers, but you're also trying to grow a business. So I guess my next question would be, you know, have you seen better results as a result of um, this kind of hyper-personalization and what makes it worth the investment of time and attention? We've seen uh, significantly better long-term retention, which is a great business outcome. We don't have to acquire that customer again. 
We're different than, I'd say, many companies or most companies in that we're not trying to reduce our number of customer interactions. We're trying to increase those. So, so let's say across everything, like over a million. If we send out a million packages, we will talk to probably a quarter million of those customers wow. during the month. It's and immense. Yeah. And part of it, but it's intentional in that we certainly want to serve you better. And to do that, we, have, we need to know your dog better and better and yeah. you. We're, we're not asking you to come in and check a bunch of boxes on a form. We're having a conversation and it's led by people who really, really care about your dog. Yeah. And so we're building relationship. We're building trust. We're also informing new product development. So what that allows us to do is then say, you know, your dog's teeth are very important and we've got a new product for dental health. Could I set you up with that? Is that something you'd be willing to try? Yeah. There's that relationship there. Yeah. So for other companies that are just starting to get into this kind of personalization and may look at what you're doing and be overwhelmed by it, where would you recommend they start? <laughs> uh, I think that's the right urge is to, <laughs> to feel overwhelmed. Uh, it, it, it's certainly like we had our, our stumbles along the way as we, as we got it going. It's hard to pull off, but I think the place to start is just in that that customer support, customer relationship piece of building the relationship, having genuine care or concern for serving that customer. And then uh, I wouldn't stretch too far too fast. Um, certainly like try your best to make everyone happy, but don't make promises that you're not able to keep right away. I know that in addition to that, you've also kind of expanded uh, over the last few years and you've got new partnerships, partnerships with Amazon and Target and Dunkin' Donuts and Glossier, <laughs> these companies that you wouldn't necessarily think a dog-focused company would partner with. Can you tell me a little bit about those partnerships and what led to them? They're all a little bit different. Um, what we're aiming to do there is we want our products that everywhere where our customers are. And some of those are very expected. Like, I think it's very expected that you'd find a bark product or a toy inside of a Petco. Uh, yep. So we want to be there because that's where some people want to shop and that's where they want to pick up this item. The ideas around like Duncan and Subaru and some others like that, uh, there's a new one coming, is really to be in places where it's a bit unexpected to see something for your dog where it'll catch your eye and say, and well, you're that... You're into that. Yeah, it's, it's just different. I didn't expect to see a Duncan product for my dog while I was getting my coffee, but there it is. Yeah. And makes you ask like, what is that and who did it and why is it here? Now, obviously this year changed a lot in the world <laughs> of commerce, a lot in the world of e-commerce in particular and subscription boxes. Um, I'm curious what you noticed early into the you know COVID crisis when stay-at-home orders were issued uh, what you saw in the data that reflected sort of the shifts that were to come after that? I think if you go back to March, April, we were very uneasy and I'm, the whole world was, but we just didn't know what to expect. And so right. even when we saw some of that demand coming forward, we didn't altogether trust it. 
uh, it was like, well, maybe this is just for a week uh, and then it'll go away. Yeah. There were very real operational concerns. So if you if we go all the way back to January, we we source our toys out of China for the most part. And obviously there was a lot of risk there. The, yeah. the virus itself wasn't well understood. We didn't know if the country would even be open or be able to ship product out. So we had a lot of anxiety around that. And then as that that went away, all that risk shifted into the U.S. And how do we set up our warehouses and delivery partners to be safe? Um, right. Will they stay open? Will we be able to serve our customers? A, a lot of those questions. And then would the consumer demand be there? And and it was, um, and it was very, very strong. It was just, we didn't trust it and we didn't know how long it would be there. So we were really, really conservative. Um, I'd say like up through uh, probably the end of May into June, we were very conservative, even, even though the results were incredibly positive and encouraging. It's hard to tell the signal from the noise and all of that though, as you're saying, and knowing what is a short-term blip and what is here to stay and where the trends are actually going to stick. Do you have any thoughts on, like, how do you pick apart that decision-making process and how do you know uh, what to lean into as a leader on this company? Yeah, I, I don't think we we knew. Uh, the, the thing that I tried to, I guess, organize the whole team around was was a bit of embracing the uncertainty. Yeah. And in an uncertain time, I I think the one thing is, okay, let's let's do a couple things. Let's think about cash first and foremost. Um if we're generating cash, then then we'll still be here. <laughs> so let's put all of our efforts towards activities that are going to be positive cash generating immediately, which right. unfortunately means pulling away from some longer term investments. And saying those will have to wait and they have to sit on the sidelines for a bit. Yeah. The other thing was really bear down and focus on customer quality. Uh, we and everyone else can offer uh, mm. very deep discounts to, to new prospective customers. But you're going to get less quality just in the nature of that. Right. If you offer a free trial first month, it, it won't be for everyone who takes that. And so they'll wash out and you'll have spent some money in serving them and some of your customer support time. And you would have spent a lot of cycles in supporting that customer who is a little, little less certain and provide a little less business value over time. So we yeah. said, let's tighten up and really, really focus on our high quality customers and serving them very well. And if we, if our rate of growth isn't as great, so be it. Right. Uh, and then we follow that with, let's really care about them even more. So what are the ways that we can serve them even better? Even if it costs us, how, how do we serve that customer even better? And, and we, we started to upgrade various parts of our service even more. Probably the, the most easily tracked, maybe is the way to say it, way of looking at that is when the shipping network started to slow way down because of the volume, we looked for faster, more reliable methods, even though we had to pay for those in order yeah. to serve our customer better. And they've, they've appreciated that and rewarded us with better retention um, and loyalty over time. Yeah, so you take the short-term hit in order to maintain the customer relationship for the long term. Yep, yep. 
And then what about today? What do you think of spend your time thinking about today as you're planning for next year? And again, it may be a different world again. Uh, it's a different world. <laughs> it's still, it's still an uncertain world, but, uh, we typically do, I'll say like 40% of our new volume for the year in the last six weeks of a year. Uh, so it's a very holiday oriented seasonal product. Yeah. And so right now, this year and every year, we are, we are geared up for what are we doing in the fourth quarter of the year. Yeah. How has this last year changed you as a leader? I'd say a couple of ways. We, we obviously had to go to remote work or work from home or wherever we are. Uh, yeah. And so quickly had to adapt to how are we keeping in touch with our team and uh, how are we keeping a team? How are we keeping a company with a culture instead of uh, 400 individual nodes out there? Yeah. Uh, there'd be a lot of descriptors for our culture before. I, I would say unique would be would be one of those. <laughs> and we were aware of it and we were thoughtful about it, but I believe this has made us even more so. Right. Uh, I, I definitely appreciate, uh, let's say, the remote work possibility um, much more. I would have never predicted that we could be as productive and effective remotely. And have that same culture. Yeah, yeah. I would have never thought that. And so it's it certainly changed my outlook on that. That's great. Well, it's awesome to hear. I thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us, Matt. Thank you so much. Today's episode was written and produced by Matthew Brown. Our theme is from Tyler Litwin, with additional music from Synchronize. If you found this episode through our Inbound 2020 podcast portal, welcome! Inbound has an incredible lineup of speakers this year, from Chrissy Teigen to Janet Mock, Alicia Garza to Bob Iger. If you haven't yet, head over to inbound.com and get your free pass now. As for me, I'll see you there. <laughs>